Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, a show that explores the untold stories of Minnesota's past and present. On this show, we look at some of Minnesota's greatest cultural icons. You saw that loon from really far away. Yes, I did. Do you have a good eye for these loons? I do have a good eye for these loons. And Our deeply held myths and beliefs. You think it's legit or not? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I learned reading in the history books. And the people who live and work here today. The owner of Concord Fresh Meat in South St. Paul. Okay, what do I know? All to better understand who we are as a state. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. We're kicking off season seven of the Mini Culture Podcast with a story about meat. How we eat it, how we make it, and how we think about it. What we have on our dinner plates today is quite different from what our ancestors chowed down on hundreds and thousands of years ago. And a lot of the modernization of meat making happened right here in Minnesota. KFAI's Matthew Schneeman explores our relationship with meat and how changes in the industry impact our lives today. Um, how am I going to start this? So I'm doing this piece on meat. I've been thinking about Minnesota and meat for a while now. There's a particular image in my head. My sister-in-law, Danielle, is a speech pathologist and deals with the human body. We worked with patients who had new trach placements, and usually when trachs are initially placed, it can produce a lot of secretions and phlegm, which is kind of gross. That's not the image that stuck in my head. Well, now it is. Anyway, Danielle can handle things most people would call gross, but meat, she looks at suspiciously. How can she handle one quote-unquote gross thing and not the other? So you mm-hmm. do intense things with mm-hmm. the human body. Mm-hmm. How are you comfortable with that and not the animal body? Well, it's t- totally different. I'm not eating it. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I mean, I can look at it. It looks cool, but I'm not putting it in my mouth. That's a fair point. Maybe I should come at this from a different angle. In particular, Danielle is grossed out by the image of a slaughtered animal. But not all Minnesotans are. There are people I work with who are very used to live meat, like the actual animal, like live slaughter, mm-hmm. and they find that looks appealing and like clean and good. Well, other people, including other people that can handle tracheotomy secretions, would look at that and think it's gross. And just like mm-hmm. two people looking at the same thing and having the opposite reaction, it's kind of what this piece is about. And that's the image in my head that I can't get out. Two of us looking at a dead chicken, and one thinking gross, and the other thinks, nice, dinner time. To get to this point, a lot has had to happen, and a lot of it has happened in Minnesota. There are people I work with who don't find a slaughtered animal off-putting. Instead, they find the processed frozen chicken in grocery stores a bit gross. My name is Hope. You've been here for over 40 years. 45. 45. This is Hope. She's from Nigeria and is my co-worker at a group home. And you still, you haven't gotten used to the American version of meat. I prefer fresh meat. And my favorite meat is venison. Venison? (laughs) I asked her about grocery store meat. When you see the meat all packaged, are you like, eh, I'll get it? Or does it gross you out? Or are you used to it now? 
No, I can never be used to it. Here's my friend Josiah. He's from Kenya and has been here since 2003. Yeah, what type of things have you have you not been able to get used to? <clears throat> like uh, this issue of uh, hot dogs. I don't like hot dogs. But I realize again, in America, hot dog um, is um, a big deal. I, I don't know, but I don't like it. <laughs> it is weird. It, it's, it's a meat paste that's like solidified. Whatever it is, you know, it, it's, I don't like it. Uh, my name is Aisha, and I know Matthew because we are co-workers. Meet Aisha. She's Minnesotan, but her father is from Somalia. He goes up to a place in Little Canada to get his fresh meat. Did your dad ever come back and he's got like blood on his collar or something? One day they did come back with a goat head. But yeah, they used to traumatize us. I came home from school one day. They would chase us around the house with a goat head. Scariest thing ever. (laughs) I mean, that does sound scary. Mm -hmm. It was so sad. Um, So they tease you. Do they say anything at all? Or or they just like call you, just giggle? They just laugh. They're just like, ah, you're scared of a goat head. Obviously it's a goat head. (laughs) Like... Today, there is a lot of distance between us and meat, and we've gotten used to that. How did we get to the point when you can have two different people, say, my sister-in-law Danielle and Hope, look at a slaughtered chicken, and one goes yum, and the other wretches? It's like the blue dress, gold dress of meat. You think that's gross? No way, that's not gross. That's gross. The origins of that reaction is what I'm hoping to find out. My first stop is in South St. Paul. South St. Paul used to be known for its meat packing, but its days as the world's largest stockade have passed. At first, South St. Paul was mostly a stockyard, a stepping stone between ranches and Chicago where the animals were processed. But in 1919, Armour & Company, a major player in South St. Paul history, expanded their meat processing. It was done in response to World War I. Federal subsidies were given to increase meat production to feed the army. They ended up feeding many more. At its peak, between the 1930s and 60s, the stockyard employed 6,000 people. However, in the 1970s and 80s, the industry changed and meat processing moved yet again. Yet there are still animal-related industries in South St. Paul, including a couple small-scale slaughterhouses. One of them is Concord Fresh Meat, a mung-run live meat market named after the road that it's on. I walked in. It was intense. There were smells and wet feathers everywhere. At first, the smells scared me. It smelled like death or rotting animals or something primordially scary. But that was mostly just in my imagination. I looked at the wet floors and I realized that the smell was more like a wet dog. The other smells were just kind of farm animal smells. Ironically, what I thought was the smell of death was actually the smell of life. I mean, death was involved. It was a slaughterhouse. So I'm surrounded by dead chickens and yeah, bloody buckets. Uh, uh-huh. I met with Morgan, the owner of Concord Fresh Meat. Hello. Hi, Morgan. I'm Morgan. I'm Matthew. Okay, what do I want to know? What did I want to know? How do you kill animals? Uh, my name's Morgan Tao. I am the owner of Concord Fresh Meat in South St. Paul. Let's do the basics. You have chicken. In this building, we have chickens, pigs, goats, sheep, and cattle, cows. Yeah, maybe I'll get a chicken today. 
Concord fresh meat is the opposite of the problem I was diagnosing. Can I get a chicken? Can you get chicken? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll get you chicken. Come There's on, literally no distance between you and the oh, animal. Hey, it's the interesting part. He brought me to the okay. chicken area. Wow, that's a bucket of... Mm, a bucket of blood. bucket of blood and right. guts. A lot of people are scared of blood, but blood is, you know, everybody can tell that blood. Okay, let me, let me get one. I won't air the actual killing of the chicken. It's too intense for a general audience, which I suppose is the point of this story. I don't think these sounds would be as jarring if we were familiar with animal death. So I'll describe it instead. A worker grabbed the chicken. It was black and lean, unlike the puffy white chickens that may appear in your head if you think of the word chicken. That chicken may in fact be the Cobb 500, a hybrid animal designed to grow quickly and prioritize meat over bones. My chicken wasn't that. Anyway, the worker pulled my chicken's head back, slid its throat, and dropped it into a bucket where it quickly passed out and died from blood loss. The chicken was then dropped into a bucket of hot water. Dip into hot water so that the hair comes off. Then into a defeathering machine, and then I had my chicken. Cut it open, go home, and cook your yeah. milk. When I told most people about my chicken experience, they recoiled. How did we get here? How did the killing of a chicken, something routine and previously ho-hum, become akin to watching Saw 4? Well, to get there, let's have a little history lesson. Back in the 1800s, the meat industry would have seemed like a scaled-up version of a shepherd and their flock. But thanks to inventions and innovations like barbed wire fences, refrigerated railroad cars, and the disassembly line, the industry changed. It went from cowboys and campfires to looking more like an iPhone factory. After the industry changed, the animal did. This one starts in Minnesota. In 1893, Andrew Boss, a U of M professor, taught a course on animal husbandry. And in 1902, it became a whole meat lab. And universities throughout the states followed. At first, the Andrew Boss meat lab answered simple questions like, how do cows' stomachs work? What's the best corn to soy feed ratio? How to breed chickens to make them bigger? Now they study things like how to use ethanol byproducts and distillers' grains as animal feed, understanding E. coli and environmental concerns. It's all very technical, but one product that came from their research that you may have heard of is wild rice burgers. And they were looking at um, wild rice as an antioxidant and beef patties. I thought that was just like a Minnesota like marketing thing. Where it's like... There's a lot more behind that. If you can just Google that, you can see what was done through the Beef Council. Dr. Ryan Cox. Uh, Ryan Cox, Associate Professor in Department of Animal Science and Extension Meat Specialist. Dr. Cox explained that today, a meat lab works closely with the animal protein industries to test and develop industry practices. Uh, we are the industry and the industry is us kind of a thing. What does that mean? Well, companies can commission research studies with universities and universities, along with the USDA, provide oversight and open access to industry's practices. Which means the size and shape of the meat industry now has a lot to do with meat labs. 
So is the Andrew Boss Meat Lab the answer to my how did we get to now question? Do they create the Frankenstein chicken part man, part nature? Are they the reason that there's 33 billion chickens in the world? Well, in a way, yes. But I'm leaving out a rather large factor, us. We will only make the meat that we're consuming, really. That's always been our industry's goal is, is right-sizing because otherwise there's no efficiency. What does right-sizing mean? It's essentially following our demand, meaning we have enough inventory on hand to, to meet the demand for meat right now. Demand for meat. But what's behind demand? The biggest factor is the price. Compared to 100 years ago, all meat is cheaper, and so we eat more of it. How much more? Around 100 pounds a year more today than in 1909. So, is meat being cheap the answer to my how'd we get to now question? I think so. But we're not out of the woods yet. Because, is meat actually cheap or have the cost just been deferred? There are feed crop subsidies, a lack of environmental and carbon taxes, the suffering of the animals, and not to mention labor, which we'll touch on in a moment. It's easy to look at what people call factory farms and blame them for modern meat if you happen to have a problem with modern meat. But the meat lab in particular is more like the IRS. They only collect what we tell them to. And if we want a less efficient but more ethical industry, the U of M's meat lab will be there to help us do just that. I've been talking about how industry and universities found a way of making meat cheaper. One obvious factor I haven't brought up yet is labor. My name is Peter Ratcliffe, and I'm executive director of the Eastside Freedom Library. Peter Ratcliffe is a labor historian. South St. Paul's meat industry ran on immigrant labor, but a hundred years ago, it was European immigrants. But it wasn't as simple as poor, hardworking people came to America looking for opportunity as I had been told. But more like the opportunity had shifted, had moved, and they had to follow it. Peter explains. In 1880, a barrel of flour milled in Minneapolis would be shipped from the States all the way to Europe. And by the time those barrels of flour would get to a marketplace in Hamburg or Bremen or Warsaw. Um, they actually undersold flour that had been made there. Which means that at the turn of the 20th century, Minnesota flour mills were so efficient that they destabilized farms in Europe and those workers had to come here. That's not so different from what happened in recent history. In the 1990s, when the United States government is negotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement with Canada and Mexico, it enables corn and corn flour and cornmeal being milled here in Minnesota to be shipped to Mexico and undersell the flour and meal that's being produced in Mexico out of corn that's grown in Mexico. And so the same thing happens yet again. Which explains why Hispanic and Latinx workers have become integral to meat processing in Minnesota. 
Hello? This is Milena from Fae Justicia, a Latinx faith-based group that promotes community and workers' rights in central Minnesota. So I will call the worker in just one second. She connected me with Maria, who works at a Genio plant in Melrose. Maria is from Mexico and has two kids. <laughs> Milena also translated for me. She said, I am undocumented. Being undocumented means she can't work directly for Genio, but she can work for a contractor in the same building, working with the same turkeys. Marie describes small and large forms of discrimination, not being given coupons like other employees, or being denied a back support belt while transferring a large amount of boxes. As a contractor and not a Genio employee, she does not qualify for benefits and doesn't have job security. One injury and she could be fired. It's a hard way to live. Even if she had a social security number, the job would still be tough. Is the plant cold? La planta está muy fría. Sí, uh, pues ellos tienen como... Yes, uh, they, they is very cold and the summertime, like this time, is very cold. Wow, so... In, it's always cold in Minnesota. You don't get a break. No, there is no break for us. Could you, um, could you just describe what a normal day is like? Maria gets up at 11 a.m., takes care of her kids until 5.30 when she goes in to work the night shift. I get to the job, I I get I get to the machines where I work. Currently, Maria's job is pulling the turkeys from one machine and transferring them to another one where they get wrapped. And then and then uh, when after they are working for like two hours, then they have their first break break. Ah, uh, well, supposed to be the break is for 15 minutes. And by the time that we get to the bathroom, it is three minutes. And you wait on the bathroom to use the bathroom, and, and then it's less time. There is a person that has um, problems on her legs and when she go down that she won't down and she doesn't have time to rest she just go down to the bathroom and come back we've been talking about a lot of the difficulties of working are there any fun memories or like funny things that have happened at work pues la, pues lo único que, que hacemos... <laughs> she said i don't think there is anything <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am trying to think of something fun, but it's hard to. But she's proud of her work and grateful for the job. But still. I'm going to explain you something and you can tell me how do you feel. If you are a child and you go to a, a, a party. And and they cut the cake, and to all the children they give their piece, and they tell you you don't, you cannot have it. The cake Maria wants isn't that much. Maria's coworkers, official Genio employees, get benefits, can't be fired at will. 
enojar y, y desear ese pastel. Uh, yes, that made me, that made me angry and made me desear, ¿cómo se dice desear? And wishing the cake. Y se preguntaría, ¿por qué yo no? And I, I will, I ask myself, why I not? A representative for Genio emailed me. In response to the claims you listed, we expect our vendors and suppliers to provide their team members a positive working experience. We do, however, have standards that our vendors and suppliers must meet in order to work with us. We will investigate the work belt claim you noted, as we expect all individuals to work safely while in our facilities. The workers and the animals have both been subject to the Industrial Revolution. They both have been mechanized, and they both can only operate in a humane society if they, in my opinion, can't be seen. Because when you do look at it close, I don't think it's that great. Peter Ratcliffe. And I think that many of us in the United States and many people in advanced industrial societies around the world um, have, have tried not to think about how our food is made, particularly our animal-based food. Maria. Isn't that the same thing? See the apple for outside and see it for inside. Say that again. <laughs> She's saying that it's, not, it's the phrase I use because when I'm going to eat something, I don't know how it's inside. The apple looks good before you bite into it. Dr. Ryan Cox. Is that somewhere around 98% of our population has nothing to do with food and doesn't produce food in any way, has no connection to their food. Couldn't tell you where it came from. Morgan Tao from Concord Meat. Some people say, I don't like to kill animals. Why are you killing animals? I say, you know why? Because you're eating it. So everybody had a dirty hand. Everybody had bloody hand. <laughs> Not just the people who use a knife and slaughter it. As the people who are eating, it's everybody. I wanted to understand how two people can look at the same thing, a slaughtered chicken, and have opposite reactions. Why my coworker Aisha is freaked out by a goat head and her dad is fine with it. I don't think the answer is that profound. It's just you get used to things. If you see an animal get slaughtered a couple times, you'll probably be okay with it. And conversely, if you don't see inhumane working conditions and the animal suffering of large-scale meat, well, you'll probably be okay with that too. So it's all about what you see or don't. If you have to choose between the two, I suggest don't look away. Not being aware of something doesn't change how much it affects you. Be open-minded, open your eyes, Open your mouth. <laughs> Is that your new phrase? Yeah. <laughs> if you open my head, you don't go crazy. By the way, Andrew Boss Meat Lab has a storefront, and you can go there if you like on Wednesdays from 2 to 5 p.m. What'd you get today? I got a bunch of ground beef. They sell meat products the students make along with cheese and ice cream from the dairy program. Pork shoulder rolls. And soup bones, beef soup bones. Soup bones. I got a, I got a steak. Nice. And uh, I got a, they have nice smoked pork chops here. Another guy got some suet to feed the birds with. I got some green tea ice cream, 
which kind of melted on my way home. I'm Matthew Schneeman for KFAI. Thanks to Musical Exquisite Corpses for the music in today's episode. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season 7 of the Mini Culture Podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sensulo. New episodes coming soon, so subscribe to Mini Culture wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, John Gibertatios, and thanks for listening.